But what you raise is something that is kind of a cultural misnomer. This is that philanthropy is for rich people. We focus on these big gifts and, and these people who have lots of money, you know, the Gates and the Buffets of the world and all that, right? And, you know, justifiably so to a, to a point, but actually it turns out proportionally people who have less give more money than people who have more. That was Matt Hug speaking about fundraising, which is our topic on today's episode, episode number 51 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. As mentioned, Today, we're going to discuss a vital multi-billion dollar industry that seeks to help societies and people around the world function better. I'm speaking about fundraising. In part one of this two-part series, we'll cover such topics as what the different kinds of fundraising are, how fundraising has evolved over the past few decades, differences, and how funds are raised around the world, and COVID-19's impact on the fundraising industry thus far. To help us do that, we've got a fundraising expert. He's Matt Hug. Matt Hug is an author and instructor in nonprofit management in the United States and abroad. He is president and founder of Nonprofit.Courses, an on-demand e-learning educational resource for nonprofit leaders, staff, board members, and volunteers with thousands of courses in nearly every aspect of nonprofit work. Matt has taught nonprofit management at several universities and technology companies online and in person in the United States, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Matt's past work includes fundraising for the University of the Arts, Ursinus College, University of Cincinnati, and the Boy Scouts of America. He has a BS from Juniata College and an MA in Philanthropy and Development from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Looking Forward. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. Sounds like a, a, we'll have a great conversation. We've had them, and I'm sure we're going to have one with you, too. Matt, you're a longtime expert on helping many different nonprofits raise money through fundraising. Mm -hmm. and I know that along with me, our listeners will be curious to know how you became involved with nonprofits in the first place and then with fundraising. Was this one of those things where you had planned to do it? You had a vision when you were about eight years old and you said, I want to be in fundraising nonprofits. Maybe your father worked in that or your mother. No. How, did it, how did it all happen? Well, I'll tell you about this. First of all, my, my, my parents, particularly my father, still wonders today, you know, like, what is this stuff? Uh, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, really. So was it a vision as I was a child? No, not at all. In fact, uh, um, there, there's uh, uh, back in the, you know, way, way back in the day when those anti-drug commercials are coming out and they said, you know, uh, uh, I want to be a crack addict when I, you know, when I, those things, right? It was like, I want to be a fundraiser when I grow up. Nobody says that. <laughs> 
but uh, I actually, I think though, uh, I was in scouting when I was a kid, really involved with the Boy Scout program. And uh, there was a salesmanship merit badge. Boy Scout merit badges are not just, you know, do one thing. They're actually like a little, <laughs> there's a lot to them. And uh, maybe one of the first indications was I picked a non-tangible uh, thing to sell uh, to the merit badge counselor. I forget exactly what it was. I mean, that's kind of what fundraising is, is you're selling something that really isn't tangible. You're selling a vision and a mission. I got into it uh, by accident, uh, which kind of is the traditional way. Uh, there's uh, most people I know uh, don't, it's changing a little bit now. There are some undergraduate programs in nonprofit work or fundraising. Well, not mostly nonprofit work, but uh, most people get into it Maybe they uh, were like I, I was in the alumni office and development office as a work study student when I was in college. Uh, that's a path people come into it. Uh, sometimes they're the best uh, of whatever they do, like um, the best environmental policy person who then they say, hey, can you write a grant proposal for this or the best uh, social worker who gets tagged with it, with representing the agency to something and they're really good at it and they kind of end up being asked, can you do this and slide into that role? So uh, yeah, for me, I um, actually have a degree in uh, uh, what uh, Juniata College called uh, natural history. Uh, we wrote our own majors there, uh, biology, geology, and anthropology. Uh, did a year of graduate school in paleontology. And then for a bunch of circumstances, uh, including the job market and some other things, I'm still on leave from that. And <laughs> um, started uh, because I had experience with the Boy Scouts uh, working in their retail side, the supply division, selling Boy Scout products, uh, you know, uniforms and camping gear and all that for them for the program. And one of the people who was my boss uh, said, hey, you ought to look into being a district executive, which is uh, kind of a, an administrator for a particular uh, geographic area in scouting. And so Gloucester County, New Jersey, and then Cape May, New Jersey. And so that's uh, how I kind of slid into this. Totally didn't intend to do that. I was uh, all through high school involved with environmental works and teaching uh, environmental things. Uh, yeah. You sort of veered into the Boy Scouts after having been a Boy Scout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I had mentioned in your intro that you have a degree in fundraising. Yes. So what prompted you or motivated you to do that? Well, I really liked what I was doing. So by that time, I had uh, moved to uh, Lebanon Valley College in uh, near Hershey, Pennsylvania, in Anvil. And I, I was really enjoying it. I wanted to get better at it. And education has always been an important thing in my family. And so I started looking at graduate programs. And I really didn't want to do the night MBA. Uh, I, was, I was a new father at the time. Um, I, it just was more, and this program, and actually it was the very first program for fundraising, or as we called it, philanthropy and development uh, in the country. It was started uh, because of an, a really odd circumstance at the college it offered at St. Mary's, now University in Minnesota, where the plan giving officer, you know, that's bequests and trusts and things like that, ended up being named in the will of one of the people who he was working with stewarding for a plan gift. And he said, oh, that's my money. And the school said, no, you're working for us. That's our money. And the courts agreed with him. 
And they started getting uh, really digging into ethics and fundraising and wanted to do a master's program that really was focused on ethics in philanthropy and fundraising. And uh, that became uh, the program that I graduated, like I said, the first class to graduate from it in 1994 and made a major difference uh, in my life, but also uh, I think for now hundreds, if not thousands of others, there have been more and more programs like that. And we'll probably come back to this near the end, by the way. Matt, fundraising for nonprofits, in my estimation, seems to encompass a lot of different activities and initiatives. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a good overview of what we mean, what you mean by fundraising? Sure. Maybe it's it's important to to kind of parse some words out because there's there are some things that people say, language they use around this that sometimes means the same thing and sometimes it doesn't. So folks will say fundraising, but then you might also encounter the development office or in um, institutional settings like colleges, universities, healthcare. Right? You might hear of the advancement office. And, and so uh, fundraising is basically, in, by my geeky definition, okay. is uh, just asking people for money. That, that's fundraising, right? Now, development really comes out of the, the, the words developing relationships with people. And that's a, a much more sophisticated kind of approach because I can send you a letter today and ask you for money. But, and we can, and maybe over a series of letters, develop a relationship because direct mail is a good way of doing that. But it's, it's development itself is more than just the ask. It's, um, it's building a relationship based on the goals of the person with which you are working to make that gift to your institution. Uh, advancement is a little bit uh, kind of more akin to development. It's about relationship building, but it kind of flips it a little bit and takes it. You are advancing the mission of the institution. So it, it's, it looks a little broader. Some development, or excuse me, some advancement offices will include other things like marketing. Um, some will include admissions in uh, uh, education settings, community relations, things like that. So it's taking a little more holistic approach as opposed to development, which tends to look specifically at, at raising money uh, as the end game, whereas advancement is looking at a little more broadly. But really, it's that relationship that makes a big difference uh, in development versus fundraising. Okay. And then you have one-time giving. Somebody just makes a donation. Yeah. Either once a year or maybe just once. I know right. I've only made one donation. Somebody died and I donated money yeah. to that college or institution. Yeah. Memorial gifts. Yeah. yeah. Memorial gifts. But then you have that stronger relationship where they're actually leaving money. Oh, yeah. Institution. Which is yeah, I mean, that there, considered part of fundraising or would that be? Oh, big time. Yes, big that that is a, a genre known as planned giving. So planned giving is and, and it's really honestly the, the ultimate in building relationships. Uh, it, it's it really is development where you are talking to people about their legacy, about what uh, the world will look like after they leave the world. And uh, there are some really good people that do that um, on both sides of that fence, the people who facilitate it from the institutions uh, and then the people who uh, are actually doing it. There's actually kind of a continuum through development and fundraising that starts with uh, what I call personally passive solicitation, which is uh, 
the uh, the coin box on the convenience store counter, uh, which actually there's more to that than you think. I, I I taught a class one time where a woman uh, we were talking about this. She raised her said, "Oh, we do this right. We collect money from mall fountains, right? Okay. Yeah. I've been to a couple of malls. You have this fountain. People pitch in money. There's a sign. Yes. Yeah. The one thing you don't think of is when you scrape up all that money out of the fountain, you have to dry it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they scraped all. They put all the scraped money uh, on the um, on the carpet in the executive director's office and let it sit over a weekend, and then they would rake it all up and put it in bags and take it to the bank. I mean, there's a lot more to this. Anyway. Wow, <laughs> who would even think? Then there's direct mail, and then uh, or direct response, which gets into direct mail, email, um, social media to some extent, right? Where uh, it, it's kind of smaller, and, and this is there's a continuum. Uh, if if you have a small gift that's typically uh, very transactional, right? Like you said, somebody sends it, you're done, right? Uh, as opposed to then as you move up that continuum into um, more uh, corporate giving, grants, um, major individual giving, that becomes more relationship-based. And those are, uh, you know, the, and the continuum says that the stronger the relationship, the bigger the gift. Yeah. And so if people love you, uh, you know, they, they might have the capability of giving $10,000, but if they love you, you might get $100, maybe $10, nothing, right? But if, or excuse me, if they don't like you, if they love you, they're going to figure out a way to give you like 20000 or 50000 or something else, right? Yeah. So it's the small gifts that, that are the non-relationship gifts and the big ones that are. Okay. A couple of other things I want to ask you before we look at how yeah. fundraising has evolved, Matt. Oh, Sure. One is, is there something parallel that goes on in the for-profit world? We're yeah. focusing here primarily on the nonprofit world, but do you have fundraising of sorts taking place in the for-profit world to any extent? Yeah, in a couple of ways, it's kind of interesting. Well, first of all, you know, somebody might say, and if you do Google search or go to, well, nonprofit.course is my website has things on fun, charitable gift fundraising, right? But if you use Google fundraising, sometimes you'll find um, people raising money for their business, right? For startups and things like that. But really sales, which is commonly the, the parallel that people will make, isn't really fundraising for one a really important reason. That So if I take a pen and I give it to you, we'll pass it through <laughs> our little electrons here. All right. Uh, and um, you give me a quarter for the pen. Now you are the the recipient of that, right? And the person who pays for that, right? So it's just me to you. I give you the pen. You give me a quarter. We're done. In the nonprofit world, if uh, my mission is to make sure that everybody who needs pens uh, gets a pen, because we're in a pen deprived world, I give you the pen, and then I turn around to a third party and say, can you pay for that pen? Now we are breaking up that what in the business world is a customer and in the nonprofit world, making it two different entities, the end user or client and the donor. And that's really the big difference because uh, in very few business areas, and maybe there are some, uh, that do you have that, that, I mean, you might have third party pays, right? In some instances, that's about as close as you might come that you have, but having those two entities now that you have to satisfy the client and the donor, 
really make for a more complicated situation. And fundraising is about bringing that donor as close as ethically possible, because sometimes it's not when you deal with people or vulnerable populations or whatever, but to, to understand the donor, to understand the experience of the client you're serving. In some respects, it's, it's more like intangible sales, kind of it, people who are in insurance sales might have some familiarity with this model, right? Uh, but the other thing too that uh, is important is that ethical fundraising is non-commissioned. Interesting. Now here's one more question. Can you give our listeners a couple or three examples, mm -hmm. let's just say in the last century, of people who gave a lot of money to nonprofit causes? Yeah. There's the Rockefellers, there's the Carnegie. I mean, you know, for a while you saw Carnegie libraries all over the place. They've probably been repurposed to different things like the one in Huntington, Pennsylvania uh, became the museum at Junietta College, right? And, and so there's, I mean, there are notable examples like that all over the place. But what you raise is something that is kind of a, a cultural misnomer. Okay. Which I really want to tell you about. So this is that philanthropy is for rich people. And nothing could be further from the truth. Philanthropy is for all people. You know, you give $25 to a cause and that's philanthropy. And yeah, the press isn't going to go beating down your door saying, hey, tell me, tell me, right? But it really is that, uh, I mean, we focus on these big gifts and, and these people who have lots of money, you know, the Gates and the Buffets of the world and all that, right? You know, justifiably so to a, to a point, but actually it turns out proportionally people who have less give more money than people who have more. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That, that so, is interesting. Uh, yeah, it's it really is. Maybe it's because they're closer to the problem and they see, you know, what's going on uh, that way. Um, and, but I, I will tell you that if people who gave, who had more gave at the same proportion, we would be blowing the doors off of philanthropic giving. Wow. Uh, really uh, amazing. So yeah, there's a, a big difference there. There's also a big difference. Uh, uh, a lot of people get caught up with, you know, when they ask, gee, are you asking for, uh, they feel like they're, they're begging, right? And the, the whole point, I kind of made up this thing called one, two, one, four, one. So one to one, me to you, for that other person over there that we're trying to help. So we work in partnership. I might bring the program, you bring the money, and we're working to get that person the help they need, as opposed to one to one for me, which is I'm asking you directly one to one and the money's coming to me. Right, right. <laughs> That's begging. Yes. <laughs> the other that is, is begging. <laughs> right. That's a good distinction. And you also reminded me, Matt, of you'll hear, you probably hear this more often than I do, of people who die. Nobody really knew of these people or very few people knew of these people. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Smith left $4 million to Juniata College, and, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of illustrates your example of these aren't necessarily famous people who do that. That's very interesting because there are a lot of folks who are like that. The unknown, so years ago, uh, there was a book series came out called The Millionaire Next Door. Oh, and, yes. Tom Stanley. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these people around the country and in the U.S. and abroad, I'm sure, that don't look like they have wealth. 
and yet they uh, they are savers. Uh, I mean, sometimes you know people who it's interesting that people who give bequests, who leave p uh, charities in their will, are not oh, in fact, often not the big donor types. They tend to make their gifts while they're alive, and the money goes to the family. I'm talking broad generalities here. But the folks who give in their will tend to be the ones who make consistent gifts of $2,550 a year over like 20 years. And then they make that gift at the end, and they're going to be all kinds of uh, professions. And, you know, and they're the saver professions like teachers and pastors and social workers who will do that because they know the value of a dollar. They've saved this money for themselves now. They don't need it. Off it goes to their church or to their hospital or to a school they worked at or something. Okay. Matt, if you could please give our listeners an overview of what changes or trends we've seen in how nonprofits raise funds over the past few decades, right up until COVID. We're going to get into COVID too, but <laughs> up until COVID, let's have you start with the United States. Sure. How, what have you seen? You've been in this like 30 years almost, right? So what, what have well, you let's, seen? Let's say that, yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Don't want to advertise your age, but go ahead. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, so um, I'll tell you what has uh, really uh, was growing, and I think the last year has really accelerated so many things. Uh, we were seeing a lot of these uh, tools in place, like virtual events, like uh, the one thing that uh, was really kind of a European phenomenon that started to get some traction in the U.S. and then really ramped up was monthly giving or ongoing giving, where uh, a nonprofit would have license to charge your visa card or do it a, a direct transfer from your bank account every month uh, to make a gift. That that was a uh, was growing and really accelerated, and I think the pandemic didn't have so much to do with that as the fact that we are accepting that methodology in our daily lives for so many other things for uh, this you know the the box culture where you know boxes come to your house for different things Th things like that where you get charged you know your gym membership and all that yes uh so uh yeah that that's a biggie the other it's interesting to see that uh how can i say what's old is new again yeah uh, when you obviously see things like um, these Kickstarter type thing, you know, where crowdfunding, where people are putting money into, right? Well, yeah, but that used to happen years ago, just without the technology in a different way. Hmm. So you would have uh, somebody, uh, typically a woman in a house in a neighborhood who was, um, you know, for was probably wasn't working at the time, right? And uh, they would have the United Way or Red Cross or Heart Association thing. And she would send letters to all her friends or drop them off in her neighborhood to collect money for whatever cause that was. And then turn around and turn it into the organization or whatever. I mean, that that's we've tech that up now. Our community isn't the people living around us. Our community is our Facebook friends or whoever is out there, right? But it's kind of the same sort of thing. We uh, uh, multi-channel, I'll tell you. So direct mail, really great, solid way to raise money. But when email came in, folks were saying, oh, we don't need to spend the money to, uh, to do that uh, you know, for direct mail and the paper. We can just email everybody. Well, it turns out email doesn't work quite as well. And there's that whole tip that we have a different ethic 
about email than we do about direct mail, where if you get too many pieces of direct mail, eh, you know, aside from environmental concerns, people kind of tolerate that. Right. But if you get too many emails, oh, you're a spammer, you're out. <laughs> right. That's interesting. It's, it's easier to turn off that pipe. And what folks were finding is uh, actually multi-channel marketing uh, was much more effective. So you would send a, a letter and then you'd follow it up with an email and maybe even do a phone call after that uh, or a text message or something. And all to, to hit somebody from different directions so that they know at the end they have to make that gift. They may have, in fact, happened to myself. They did a, uh, I got a letter from, uh, from Juniata and then I got a, uh, a phonathon message or they let go to my voicemail. And then they sent me an email. I said, oh, right. I meant to do that. Click done, got the gift. But without those other two support methods, it would nearly, not nearly have been as effective. Interesting. Yeah. Matt, I know that in your career, you have been involved in fundraising efforts and with fundraising organizations that are outside of the United States. And we have about 20% of our listeners who aren't in the United States. So when you talked about the evolution of fundraising over the last 20 or 30 years, how much of that would you say is parallel to what's happened in countries outside of the US, whether it's Canada, South America, Europe, Asia, yeah. whatever? Well, it's interesting that the monthly giving work really was not a certain, you know, shocking to our American listeners, uh, wasn't an American thing. <laughs> we didn't build it here, huh? No, uh, in fact, this uh, fella Ken Burnett, at least my first experience with it, uh, a, a Brit, was uh, really uh, did a great job talking about it. Uh, in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, when it came to uh, people who were uh, street solicitors, you know, and signing uh, those folks, if you're in a city who come up to you with a clipboard, right? So yeah, monthly giving is something that's been out there a lot longer other places than here. A lot of these things are following through, you know, I mean, especially the more we get integrated into not only the world economy, but the internet uh, tosses ideas back and forth. And so, so much of this is, uh, happens around the world of anything we're talking about. But the big differences are in tax codes. Now, it's interesting to see, and I have did some work with Microsoft Philanthropic and Avanade and some other organizations about this, where they had worldwide sales forces that were looking to get involved with nonprofits in their areas, that in just about all the developed world, tax codes favor charitable giving somehow. Now, it may or may not be a deduction like in the US, it might be some other way, right? But charitable giving is tax advantaged in most of the world. But a lot of it has to do the differences in the culture in which people give. Much of the, um, what we might call the Western world, right? The developed nations uh, have uh, similar kinds of traditions. Some don't, you know, uh, but like you can see the uh, British empire, you know, commonwealth countries tend to be similar to each other because they come from that, that same tradition uh, among themselves versus maybe some of the rest of Europe or other like, you know, the Japanese or something. Really, you know, among the developed countries, there's a lot of similarities and to be able to parse things back and forth is, is a little difficult. But if you look at undeveloped and developed countries, there are some major differences. Uh, I had a student from Malawi, for example, uh, talk about this in, in my fundraising class, 
where you know the postal system really isn't that reliable. The uh, the technology in terms of cell phone service, you know, back and forth is, is had its issues, and so it really was much more of a person to person kind of experience in asking and giving and having folks support things which are much more hyper-local. Now, people supporting things local is really something we see universally, but it was something that they had to, uh, she was working with um, girls who had issues or something in there. I think she's one of the few social workers in the country. And the idea was that she had to talk to people very personally about how it impacted their lives, which honestly is really good fundraising, but you couldn't rely on that mass fundraising kind of work that you might in a developed country. Also uh, working with people in the, uh, the higher ends of the social pecking order was a little different. Sure, there was some distance between them, but again, getting back to good fundraising, it was about really much more about networking and families and having connections that way than it might be uh, here. Uh, okay. Certainly wasn't like a foundation application process. So a little bit more personal. A lot more personal. A lot more personal. And, and on the ground field work for smaller amounts of money. And, and that uh, that makes it tough because one of the things we rely on in developed countries is this communication infrastructure, which allows us to raise smaller dollar, smaller money amount gifts from a lot of people with a much higher efficiency. Okay, that's great. Now we're going to bring us up to the present time. Times are a little bit better now. Hopefully they'll continue in that direction. We're hopeful. We're hopeful. We know certainly, Matt, that uh, COVID-19 has had a profound impact on many people, many of whom haven't made it, sadly. Uh, yeah. We also know that it's had an impact on many people's incomes Definitely. and their ability, therefore, to contribute to mm -hmm. charities. So I'm curious about that and wondering if you could share with our listeners your perspective so far in terms of COVID's impact on gift giving, fundraising, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, so what you find in times like this, you might say, or what we've just come through and giving USA bears this out anytime you see a, either a recession or some economic issue going on is that the total giving may or may not shift. Often it doesn't. Sometimes it even increases, but to where it goes changes. So where you're going to see more social service giving, less arts giving. Uh, now, I tell people who uh, say, oh, we're not going to give to the theater this year because and I say, well, you know, the actors that you are not giving to this year will end up being the ones that take the services of the social service agency ah. <laughs> that you give to this year. Okay. So, you know, take your pick, right? Uh, but, uh, but no, people tend to uh, move to um, health and social service causes in times of stress and away from what they might traditionally or culturally think of as extras, you know, like theaters, museums, things like that. So that's kind of standard stuff. The, uh, yeah, you've seen, um, uh, there are a lot of people who will, I'm sure this year, the 2020 numbers when they come out, uh, will show that uh, there's a lot of giving taken away from the bottom, the giving ladder, you might say, but you might also see more giving at the other areas, you know, at the top. Uh, because a lot of folks kind of came to the rescue, increased their charitable giving, maybe took more out of their donor advice fund than they would normally to help meet the crisis. 
So yeah, years like this make a big impact on charitable giving and people's uh, interests in it. And so it's, a, it's more than just total dollars. It's where the dollars go. And let me ask you to piggyback off that, Matt. Yeah. The people who feel this are also those who are asking for the money. Mm -hmm. So what impact has it had, as far as you can tell, on the industry? Have there been job losses? Have you been getting more inquiries? We need help, Matt. Help us. We're having, <laughs> what is the impact on the people asking for the money? Yeah, you know, that's, it's kind of a conundrum. It's fascinating. So first of all, in terms of mechanics, the big issue that people faced in the last year, particularly, was how to build and maintain relationships. Because you can't now, I mean, if you look at the world generally and fundraising tends to follow life cycle. So the people, you know, young people, great. You know, the, the way, the reason you ask young people for money is to develop habit. The reason you ask older people for money is because they have it. <laughs> good. So, but your ability to connect with people um, who have the money has really been inhibited. And especially we're in this transitional technology age where they may not feel comfortable with a Zoom call or other things, right? And they may also be most medically vulnerable. So that's really, the, I think, one of the biggest impacts of in fundraising for this. Then, of course, there's a shift to virtual events, right? And that's uh, that, that was, for those who were able to move, make that move quickly, uh, it paid off. But now the problem is when people want to get back together, the genie is out of the bottle, right? right. You found there are people who really like virtual events who don't want to go to events now because yes. either they're not so sure yet or they just like the concept and, and are doing it. And then there are all these people who say, oh, no, we want to go to events. <laughs> so, yes. I can see that. Yeah. And so now the conundrum is, okay, how do we pull both of these off kind of simultaneously so we capture both groups? Yes. So far as staffing goes, there's other changes too. Especially in the beginning, there was a lot of issue about cutting staff and fundraisers for better or for worse are often seen as kind of extraneous to core mission. Shouldn't be that way, right? It's a very short-term view, but a lot of them would lose their jobs or get furloughed temporarily in this crisis. And then uh, we're starting to see some traction about that. But then it's interesting about consulting. Yes, many consultants got uh, came back, but then there's a lot of organizations who still don't have the money. They're still recovering and getting consultant costs money. And they say, well, I'm going to put it to something else and not get a consultant just yet. And so the whole thing is kind of slowly starting back up. This concludes part one of our two-part series on trends, opportunities, and the future of fundraising. In part two, we'll speak more about some of the latest fundraising approaches, what the future of fundraising may look like, and what opportunities the industry has to offer to those in the know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.